Hello and welcome back to Words the Bee Gees podcast. I'm Cristiano. And I'm Stuart. We're back to talk about To Whom It May Concern, the Bee Gees studio album released October 1972. As ever, thank you to everybody for their feedback for the previous episodes, for their thoughts on Trafalgar and Two Years On. Yeah, and it's quite good to get some different uh, feedback to what we think of it. Yeah, much different opinions. Yeah. So going into this album, what are your general thoughts? I wouldn't say it's my favourite of the early ones, but it's one of my favourites. I mean, it's definitely a mishmash of stuff. And it sounds like they were enjoying themselves in the studio, listening to the, you know, there's one or two experimental tracks on here. You got the ballads, you got up-tempo songs. So you got a bit of everything. We started this podcast to share the more underrated BG songs and also to see if we could change our opinions by doing repeated listens to the albums and our research and our discussions with each other and also with the audience, just to see if we can get different perspectives on the album. Mm. To Whom It May Concern was an album that, when I first heard it about three years ago, it was okay, it was fine. Again, I always preferred Trafalgar. Yeah. I have to say, in these past few weeks of research, listening to this album quite a lot, it has become one of my favourites. Yeah. Well, in fact, there's there's two songs, which I'll say later. There's two that's really a little bit like you. I've pl- I played it and... Yeah, it's good. I mean, Run To Me was always the dominant track on the album. Uh, but there's one or two that, that probably out of all the albums we've done so far, my opinion's shifted. It's certainly getting the brothers, you know, good chance to shine on, on, on a lot of tracks, isn't it? Yeah. I really, really do like this one. This one, Trafalgar and Two Years On, you could probably class as a, uh, what, trilogy of albums? Because I think... Once you go to Life in a Tin Can, I think because they're going to record it in America, this is probably the last album of that phase. Because I think this album, the way the songs are, it's it's quite diverse in the way that Bee Gees First is. Yes, I noticed quite a lot of references back to the style of Bee Gees First in a lot of and the I songs. And I think that's the last time we're going to get an album like this. To Whom It May Concern is notable for quite a few things. It's the last sessions that they have with Bill Shepard. It's the last album that's produced by Robert Stigwood. And also the last sessions that they have with Jeff Bridgeford on drums. So when did you first hear To Whom It May Concern? I bought the vinyl, actually. It was a second-hand one. And I did see that it had a little... On the advert, it said, with pop-up. And I'm thinking, pop-up? What pop-up? I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know. And then... Um, so we're talking about 85... And then obviously it comes with a gatefold sleeve and then you've got this little cardboard cutout of the three three of them and you can position them sort of amongst the band. But if you look closely, I, I, think, I thought it was quite amusing that when you, when you put them where they're supposed to go, if you look on the amps, you've got where Barry plays, you've got a, a, a pot of tea brewing. <laughs> and then you look at Morris's and you've got uh, three bottles of beer. I assume it's beer. What's Robin got? I know he's got nothing, actually. And then into the left-hand corner, you've, you've got Hugh doing the... or I think he's operating the spotlights. Which is quite quite apt for, for the father figure to be, you know, the one who's got the spotlight, he's got the camera as well, so he's like the, he's like the director of it. Yeah, and then, in the, and then in the background, you've got Lulu and Picture of the Wives, I think. You've got Bill Shepard's conducting, as he should, Ahmet Artigan's there, so all of these people who are... Frankie Howard. Yeah, important figures in, in the lives of the Bee Gees at that time. I think to talk about the the front cover itself, when you found it in 1985, 
It's a really enticing cover. It must have drawn you in. Yeah, I don't know whether it was the cover enticed me or the fact that I hadn't got it and wanted to complete my right okay. collection. You know, you think to yourself, I can't honestly remember whether whether it was just one of those where I brought one or this one, there was two or three for me still to buy and this one drew me to it. I don't know. But in hindsight, do you think it, it the cover's... Okay, you got you got the three of them, but do you think it's not cheap? But there's no real thought gone into it. No, I think in terms of composition, I, it's a. I think it's well placed out, and I think what Tomb It May Concern does is present. It's a direct presentation of this is the Bee Gees, and even looking on the back cover of the sleeve, where you've got the photos from the insets from I think 1963, which kind of symbolises that this album covers the entire career mm. of the Bee Gees with, with all the different styles of music that it contains. And I do think that the album cover, okay, maybe by today's standards, it might look a little bit dated. But I think that with the fact that Odessa didn't have the Bee Gees on, on the cover, two years on had a very small picture. Trafalgar, they weren't on the front cover at all. So I think it was important for this next album but I suppose if you're talking about it from... Artistically, there's... Yeah, and, and so when I was getting into the Bee Gees and going through their albums on Spotify, something that is really important is the album cover design itself. Because when you get to that point, scrolling through the albums and you get to the early 70s, you do get a lot of these albums that all look a bit, little bit sort of, a little bit bland, because Life in a Tin Can is mostly black and grey on the cover. Tomb It May Concern is mostly black and blue. You've got Two Years On is just sort of a white cover. Trafalgar is all of these sort of muted, painted colours. And then suddenly you get to Main Course and you've got this vibrant green. And then you get to later albums that have got these sort of more vibrant colours to them, like High Civilization and uh, Sizes and mm. Everything. You look back to the 60s and you've got Odessa is this bright burgundy red. And then you've got the psychedelic of Bee Gees first, haven't you? So they all stand out. So I think there is something there that these early 70s albums then i think there is a correlation between the album artwork cover and their sales but didn't we discuss it in a previous podcast where where barry wasn't sort of left the artwork up to the record company to do and he and he said for instance with trafalgar that that was morris's idea to have mm. the artwork trafalgar and then the inside and throw throw the listener as to what the record's about yeah, yeah. you know as you say it, it's eye-catching actually thinking about it looking at it now as we are I think it doesn't necessarily look cheap, but it looks like a bootleg. Because quite often with bootlegs, they'll have these... Yeah, because they want to sell the artist, don't they? Yeah, they'll have these audience photos of the artist that I suppose are sort of non-licensed photos. And To It May Concern kind of gives off that vibe. You've got these... I mean, they're beautiful photos of the three of them taken from their live tour. But it, it kind of comes across as a bit like a bootleg, mm. if you get what I mean. It's sort of like the cut-out compositions of the three brothers... But I do think that overall it, it does work well to, to represent the album in, in presenting the three brothers up front. This is who they are. This is who we were. This is, and this is who we are now sort of thing, yeah. I'm sure if I ask her she'll know. I found a quotation from Morris talking about the recording of this album. And he says, We recorded from eight o'clock in the evening onwards and recorded eight tracks that have turned out nice. It's called To Whom It May Concern, which means if anyone wants to buy it, they can buy it. It's a multitude of tracks which have been cut during the years of breaking up and getting together, and rewriting songs that we wrote years ago. 
We are definitely still together and I doubt very much we will separate again. And that multitude of tracks, I think, is a great way to describe this album. It is. But I don't know which songs I would say, or we, we've got no record of songs that, that was written years ago. I assume, was that interview in 72? Yeah. I know that there's a couple that are from late 71. Yeah. Which might have been years ago for them. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking years ago as he is referring to like, Don't Forget Me Ida, that they recorded previously that didn't get used. Just prior to starting this album, that they, they toured America, Australian America. And I think one of the tracks they were singing on there was one called Jingle Jangle. Right. Which goes back to the Australian years, probably around 65, 66-ish. So they was obviously looking back in their catalogue, weren't they? They were, they're obviously thinking it's, it's probably the first time they were sort of looking back, sort of in the 70s, at what they've done and where they go, whether looking back or taken forward, I don't know. So at the end of the tour, which finishes around about the 3rd of October, Morris then goes into the studio in October the 12th, 1971, and does some work with a uh, singer called Jimmy Stevens. I think he will go on then to produce an album for him. And then the following day, this is where the Bee Gees all get together again, and they demo three songs. First one's called What Could Have Been Done, and this is captured in three tapes. This simple number will be based around Barry's acoustic guitar and Jeff's drums. The second song for this session is one called Goodbye Blue Sky. And this one will be much in the same mode as the previous one. However, it will reach further completion with a lovely set of rough vocals and another of the Bee Gees' incredible melodic hooks. This Barry sung number, with Robin taking lead on the final verse, could have been a great album track or cover for another artist. But we do have a bit of luck with the third one, and this turns out to be the Bee Gees' next single, which is My World. like the other two songs I've mentioned this would be done in just two takes with Barry on acoustic guitar and Jeff on drums overdubs will include bass double trap piano organ percussion flutes brass and stereo strings so yeah so full production and full swing with this one according to Wikipedia this song was written backstage of ITV's The Golden Shot which is a um, a game show in the early 70s Morris goes on to say that whether something is a soft ballad or it's an up-tempo thing, we would record it if we thought it was going to make a good chart single. So for chart positions on this, Chris, I thought it'd be quite interesting. We tend to always look at the USA, Europe. Um, I thought it'd be a bit good to sort of go look a bit further afield. And it was acted really well, actually. In Singapore, it got to number one. Malaysia, number one. 
Hong Kong number one, Japan 27, and New Zealand number nine. And Australia, it got to number three. I can understand then why they went and toured a lot extensively yeah. In, yeah. over in Asia and in Japan. I thought it'd be quite interesting just to see they, some areas of the world, they might have been lacking sales, but then in other parts, they were doing really well. Yeah. Interesting. So it'd be, it'd be quite good now, I think, Chris, just keep an eye on what other singles do over there. I wonder if in those other charts, whether My World was being played on the radio alongside other British and American music, or was it mixed in with the music that was being made over there? Well, I, yeah, I, I think I think that there was a different music scene in Europe, particularly with, as I think, with the glam rock starting to emerge and your Mark Bolands and that sort of thing, which would probably hit, you know, Asian over there probably a few months later. And looking in the liner notes for the Tales of the Brothers Gib box set, Robin says that the ensuing result that My World went on to be a huge top 20 hit in the UK and the US left the three of us drooling with pleasure. I think more that it was a hit in the UK. Yeah. Because in fact, this did slightly, or not as good as Lonely Days and Hacking Men of Broken Heart. But it was the first time the lads had charted here for quite a while. So yeah, I can imagine him drooling on this one then. And I've got to say, Chris, I love this song. I mean, this song's got a sort of great way and play on words, hasn't it? I mean, it's got my world is our world and this world is your world and your world is my world and my world is your world is mine. Would it be the bridge when it goes into Robin's I've Been Crying? Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. Lonely. There's such a great pathos to his voice. Why this one isn't spoken about more often because it's phenomenal. I love yeah. it. confused with the with the other with the 60s hit world i mean this one tends to get not ignored out the other two doesn't it you got to words and world and then my world but no i i think this is one of the best early bg singles or i say early i mean seven, early 70s and it's difficult for me to ever just listen to this once every time i get to the end of the song i'm so enthused by it i always then skip back to the beginning play yeah. it again it's yeah. it's wonderful i like as well the alternating leads between Barry and Robin, and then particularly the way Barry powers through the chorus. Yeah. Is really good. There's such a clever transition between that Robin bridge going back into the chorus, because then towards the end, Barry starts to take over with, I've written to you nearly every day, and that leads it so perfectly into the chorus. It's, it's wonderful. It's got quite a nice lead into this song as well. I, I did read somewhere where somebody thought it was a bit like their unreleased song, God's Good Grace. I can see that because Robin's singing in quite a similar tone. Yeah. Thank God's good grace, we're beginning 
Thank God's good grace, I'm alive. And a superb music video as well. Oh yeah, and it's one of the few videos, I think, where Barry's shaving his beard off. Now Voyager, the song called Fine Line, he hasn't got, he's, he's without the beard as well. So we get the occasional ones. There was some promotion for this, Chris, that they did on Top of the Pops. And they actually did it to, uh, a live vocal to a backing track. And this was done on the 13th of January. And then it was repeated again on the 3rd and the 24th of February. Because if, if a record goes up on Top of the Pops, you, you couldn't play it every week. It had to be every other week. And was it rare for there to be a live vocal? I think it was something to do with the, the music union or something where they had to play it or something or other. There was, I know there was some controversy or something where they couldn't mime to a back, you know, they couldn't mime it, they had to sing it. But I can't remember the ins and outs of it. But um, but yeah, so they put a live vocal on that. And then I've managed to find a, a live, a very rare actually, I found a, a live outing for it in 1973 in Japan. Your world is mine. And my world is yours. Despite my world having all these sort of really great chart positions around the world. This record I've, I've gone through and it doesn't appear on a lot of the greatest hits. You know, there's a couple it appears on. Uh, I mean, you've got the, I wasn't at the, the ultimate Bee Gees, the, the number one Bee Gees, but because obviously they've had so many hits, this one tends to appear on one and not in another. Whereas obviously you've got a lot of them that are, that are there all the time, aren't they? And it's a shame because I think this is, the best of the bunch. Yeah. I prefer this to World. Yeah. Or quite a few of the other songs, singles from To It May Concern, even some of the singles from Trafalgar. I think this is far better. Yeah. And it's, it's great, isn't it, that um, I think this one is predominantly um, Robin. Yeah. Do you think, because Robin takes on the bridge, is, would, yeah. it be, would it be the bridge section of the song? But do you think he had that written... And Barry had his intro or verse and they stitched them together. It could have been. It could be. I think obviously having two sort of lonely days and heading men and broken heart, which I always think is, is Barry. It's nice then to get the, another single, you know, the lead off. Or it's not really a lead off single, is it? It's sort of one that's sort of placed sort of in trim of an album coming out. So, And I think it's around 1972 that Robin really seems to find his voice. There are some songs, including My World, and on the next few albums, where I think Robin really sort mm. of reaches a peak as a vocal performance. It's, it puts a lump in my throat every time. Well, I think so. After the, well, Personally, after that slight dip with Trafalgar, and even two years on, which I think those two albums didn't re- represent the best of Robin after what we've heard from 1970. Yeah. So I think it's great here now, him sort of, Getting into his mojo, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did you ever hear this on the radio as an 11-year-old? Don't remember. No. Don't remember this at all. 
I can't even remember when I first heard it. So because this came out, I think it was, for, I've got it here down the 14th of January, 72 worldwide. And then the next side, the other side we've got is, I think is on time. It's a really good A-side and B-side single. Very good, yeah. Ain't got time, only got a dime to make a last call. I'm getting soaking wet in a day green jet since last fall. I got myself a coach ticket on the Southern Railroad line. I don't have to worry because I know it never leaves on time. And everything was alright. You walked out the door, and the only thing I saw was the whole light. I got myself a coach ticket on the Southern Railroad line. I don't have to worry, cause I know one never leaves on time. So, with my world being composed by Barry and Robin, that you flip it over, and the B side on time is a solo composition from Morris. Which is what they did before with How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, Country Woman. That's true. This is another really good one. I'm pleased, actually, because they brought out a four-disc, was it Mythology? Mm -hmm. Uh, Where each disc was based on each brother. And it was good to hear or see this one was on on the list, which I thought it would do. Because I've got a feeling this is one of Morris's favourite songs. In the liner notes for the Tales of Brothers Give box set, Morris says that this is a song I wrote in 1971 in Maryland in the US during my swamp period. And it's also used in a film score I did called A Breed Apart, which was 1984? Yeah. Yeah, I've, lis- I've listened to that one. It's 80s feel, definitely the 80s vibe to it. But it's like most of these, isn't it? I, pre- I prefer the, the original. And I do also like the version that Stephen Gibb d- does live, accompanying Barry on tour. Yeah. And it's nice that Stephen chose this song as a tribute to his uncle, as opposed to just going for one of the more popular Bee Gees songs. He went into their catalogue, and I'm sure he must know their music so well. It's, it's in the family. Stephen very much favours harder rock, electric guitar. And that works really well for this song, with the swamp rock style. Yeah, I like this one a lot. I'd probably put it on the same level as Country Woman. Country Woman up is slightly more commercial. As you said earlier on, when Morris said it, it's, it's his swamp song. And I would, I would agree, actually. How did this A-side and B-side perform in the charts? In the UK and US, it both got to number 16. So, as I said, it's, it's the highest uh, BG single in the UK for quite a while. In Australia, it does really well. It gets to number three. In the Netherlands, New Zealand, number nine, 11, Canada, 27, Japan. But the biggest surprise to me, considering how popular they were in Germany, it only reached number 41. So obviously they needed really to go touring in Germany, didn't they? Yeah, they did. But yeah, that, that was a bit of a surprise. But 
great to hear that at least it got in the top 20 on both sides, US and UK. And it's also interesting that this would be the Bee Gees' last non-LP A-side in the US, obviously not including single edits. Last ever? Yeah. Wow. There's a bit of a gap, though, between the release of this single in January and then the album in October. These aren't album tracks, but if this is trying to, as a lead up to that album, there's such a gap that it, it maybe My World is lost as a track. We said it was a bit underrated because it kind of falls into this void period. I would think the reason for the gap, Chris, is that while the single was going up the charts and they had the video to promote it, they were touring. So they, they went over to Australia, they did Europe, they did Hong Kong and they did uh, Japan and Tokyo. The NME reports that, this is in March, the NME reports that the Bee Gees are to tape a coloured television special in Tokyo. Although it is planned for Japanese broadcast, the paper says it will also be offered to Britain and America. So that's quite interesting. And also it says that um, while on tour, the Bee Gees all perform Melody Fair, which is a quite a rare outing for it, and also the, their latest single, My World. And the tour concludes in April where they perform in Indonesia so yeah so they obviously must have spent four months they went all over the world they've kind of gone back to how they were in 68 when it was non-stop touring recording for an album release of an album non-stop touring again it's good to see they've gotten back into the flow of things yeah and I see in Japan they were presented with a gold disc for the Melody Fair soundtrack hence probably why they recorded or sang Melody Fair then in Japan if ever you got rain in your heart Someone has hurt you and torn you apart Am I unwise to open up your eyes To love me and let it be like they said it would be Me loving you, girl, and you loving Am I unwise to open up your eyes to love me? start the album with Run To Me, recorded 12th of April, 72. This is a Barry, Robin and Morris composition, and it's a pretty good sequel to How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, which is the way I tend to see it. Yeah. And what about comparing it with My World? Almost as good, I think. Well, I think it is as good as. I've got this down as a, I'll say straight away, a 10 out of 10. And again, like the previous album, it starts the album off brilliantly. It's got to be one of my favourites because I brought this when it originally came out in 72. So, and I still love it. Yeah. It's still really good. What made you go out and buy it in 72? I just liked it. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I had enough pocket money then. So um, mum went and brought it for me. So it was released 7th of July, so my birthday. So I would have been 11 because we went and that's it, 7th of July. Then we went on holiday end of July and that's when I brought it then you see that was my present for that was right it was my present for being good on holiday (laughs) 
So it, it's it's always been a favourite of mine. And I think the combination of Barry's sort of breezy vocals and Robin's sort of magnificent pleading vocals, particularly at the beginning of each of the chorus, and I just think it's a really infectious chorus. Mm-hmm. Just love it, really, I suppose. I mean, I think it's got glorious harmonies, and I think it's the best song on the album. And when you got it in 72, did, did you make the connection to Saved by the Bell, that they were the same? Possibly. I can't sit here and say yes definitely but yeah I suppose Gib helped at the back didn't he yeah <laughs> something but, might have clocked up yeah 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 yeah. thinking back to me then I can't honestly remember yeah but I know I this radio this song at the time was played continually on the radio and I think I was it was either going to get this or it was going to be there was three I think there was this one I was I was going to buy there was going to be David Bowie's Starman oh yeah or T-Rex Metal Guru and I did it with this one. How did Run To Me perform in the charts? It did really well in the UK. It got to number nine. And then in the USA, it did at the same fate as my world. It got to number 16. Okay. And then took a plummet again in Germany, whereas the previous one was 41. This one didn't even chart. It's strange how they're losing audience in Germany, considering that's one of their biggest fan base. Well, it was pre-split, wasn't it? Yeah. Even some of the solo singles did quite well. So yeah, it's it's a complete dip there. Whether, as I say, whether they just needed to do quite a bit more promotional work over there, and they wasn't doing, I don't know. Now we we talk about sometimes when we talk about the BG songs as it's Beatlesque or sounds a little bit like this. I've written down here that there's a bit of John Lennon. Well, there's a lot of words that I could use to describe "Tomb It May Concern." Eclectic is one, and another word is Beatlesque. There's a lot more tracks on this album. That remind me a lot of the Beatles. Oh, okay. I'll get into them. I'll be interesting then as we come into them then. I'm not surprised that you spotted it with Run To Me. Am I unwise to open up your eyes to love? Run to me whenever you're Run to This always seems to be a part of, when they, when they do it live, always seems to be part of a, when they put a stream of songs together. In a medley. Yeah, in a medley. And they do... Th- Pretty much the same with Too Much Heaven. So at the time, I think it'd been quite nice to have, d- to have heard a complete version of this and Too Much Heaven. Yeah. But that's that's just my thoughts, that it, it, it would have been um, great to get the full full version. But I th- obviously, they've had so many hits that there's only so much you can play in full. And do you think this is the right choice to open the album? Definitely, yeah. I couldn't find much in the way of reviews for this. The only one I came across was from Cashbox. And they say it's a speedy chart return for them and it features probably one of their best choruses in years. This is definitely eyeing up the number one spot and great B-side as well. Yeah, fair review, actually. Pretty much sums up our thoughts as well. There's an interview with Robin Gibb for The Mail on Sunday in 2009 where he recalls this song. He said, we wrote it in Robert Stigwell's house in Beverly Hills. He was a great visionary and championed our beliefs and chemistry as brothers. Lyrically, this song chronicles the wishes of a man who longs to be noticed by a broken-hearted girl. It's clear from from the song, the, the message of it, um, but it's, it's nice to know that... Because some songs, you, the artist doesn't like to disclose the meaning of it. But it's nice that Robin's being quite open and honest there and they had a clear intention when they wrote the song of what the, the message and the moral was of it. And there's also quite an interesting version from Robinson Spencer. 
I heard that for the first time a week or two ago, and it's like a cross between, it's like Run To Me meets Strawberry Fields. Yeah. Funny that you said earlier about John Lennon. Yeah. And and here Spencer's consciously, subconsciously yeah. picked up on that. Yeah, it's a very stripped back version. Until you come to the chorus, it sort of picks up a bit. But it's like the background of Strawberry Fields playing. My to open up your eyes to In the Tales of Brothers Gibb liner notes, Robin says, Run To Me was written at a time when most rock acts were trying to play it safe in terms of crafting top 40 records, and in a sense, could only have been recorded in 1972. However, having said that, it still boasts a rather infectious chorus, don't you think? Yeah, I've got to agree with that. Do you reckon then that this was a more Robin-led composition? Possibly, because I think it's down as all three, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't thought of it, but possibly. I would say this and my word are quite similar, but I would probably put my world more towards Robin. I'd give this one a 9 out of 10. Yeah, and I've gone with a 10. The second track on the album is We Lost the Road. And whilst I think this would have fitted onto Trafalgar as originally planned, I think it works just as well here. But it has the feel of the Trafalgar sessions. It's got that same majestic chorus particularly. Yeah, I agree with you. It, It could have fitted uneasy. I don't quite know why this one was held back. Whether they thought there was too many songs. In this type of vibe. It's, in terms of Barry's vocal style, it's very similar to Israel, Greatest Man in the World, Don't Want to Live Inside Myself. So it could have been too similar. Yeah. For all it's worth, there isn't so many of them songs on here, is there, on this album? It's more eclectic and stuff. So, I mean, I think the vocals, I love the vocals when they're alternating between Robin and Barry. And then it's got brilliant harmonies as per normal. This one is a Barry and Robin composition, and it was 28th of January, 71. Yeah. I do think that looking at the lyrics, it could possibly be the Bee Gees reflecting on their career up until this point and their split, that they lost the road, and now they've come back together. Yeah, because I, I, I was looking at that thinking, well, we lost the road. We lost the plot. We lost... that. Uh, that's the way I was looking at it. Mm, that's how I interpreted it as well. We've also got a, a demo copy of this as well. But the lyrics, I I think, on the demo are still the same as on the release version. 
And like a lot of the songs on Trafalgar, We Lost the Road benefits from a glorious ending with Barry's vocals, Robin and Morris harmonies, and then Shepard's arrangement all comes together and it's so superb. Yeah. It's a fine album track. It's mid, mid-range Bee Gees for me. I haven't got a lot else to say on it really, apart from I, I will go with a six on it. Okay, no, I, I, I give it a seven. I've never been alone And I've only seen the sky Still I know the reason why I've been thinking it over I've never climbed a tree But that's natural for me And you don't know my name So I'm thinking it up Never Been Alone, this is a plaintive Robin ballad, it's a Robin composition. And it's more stripped back in comparison to previous Robin compositions. And I like that, it's different. That's what I've got down, Chris, actually. But I've put down like, like a subdued arrangement on this one. I'm quite a big fan of this, funny enough. It does remind me of stuff from his solo period, this. And I think, actually, do you know, this may have been Robin's last solo track until probably Living Eyes. Yeah, I'd, I'd not considered that. I think you're right. Yeah, I, d- I don't think there's anything, because everything else is virtually... BRM. Yeah, mostly BRM, isn't it? I looked at a quick look and I thought, wow, so we're looking at 71, 72, and then nothing till... Eight, nine years later. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a big difference, isn't there? I like the Robin's quirky lyrics on this one. This bit where I've put, never rode a plane and never will again. I mean, how can you never do something again that you never did? <laughs> <laughs> and if you were beside me, you'd know what's inside me. So tell me why. And then Robin tends to hold the notes at the end of different sentences as well. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a good little track, this one. Do you have any recording information for Never Been Alone? I've got Dan Chris as the 10th of April, and it was actually the first track they worked on after coming back from the tour. Okay. So whether this was, or Robin wrote it while on tour. Whilst on the plane. Whilst on the, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said, yeah, could be, couldn't it? But yeah. So whether whether it was done then, but it, as I say, it was, it was the first track that they sat down and uh, and recorded. They also, on that same day as well, brought back um, I Can Bring Love, Barry's I Can Bring Love. So a plaintive Robin Ballad and a plaintive Barry Ballad. And they also did an unknown number called It's All Wrong. Um, and it must have been because they didn't do any more to it, did they? Yes, I'm thinking it up. With that, Chris, I'm going to give this one a six. Yeah, I'm with you on a six as well. 
with the next track, shall we go all the way back to 1967 and have a bit of paper mache, cabbages and kings? This is a complete return to that quirk of Bee Gees' first horizontal, was it Mr. Waller's Wailing Wall? That's and, it, that's it. And then suppose other studio outtakes. All combined in one song. Yeah, I, I've got that this is the kitchen sink Gib song. Everything's thrown in there. There's fictitious nonsense lyrics, interweaving harmonies, varying tempos. I think it starts to quicken towards the end. There's a piano ballad breakdown at about 2 minutes 20. And then towards the end, the song goes into like a pub drinking song with a, yeah, it it has everything thrown at it. This is one of those songs when I first heard the album a few times and I got to this one, I'm not sure whether it was the song that put me off, but then whenever I thought about this album, I would then immediately think, oh, this has got that funny song, (laughs) the, the style that I wasn't so keen on. But as I said at the beginning of this episode, with my opinion changing on this album for the better... This one's really grown on me. I like it a lot just because of how much it demonstrates everything that the Bee Gees could do. Yeah, me too. This is this is the one I've I've got is vastly improved. There's a couple of songs on here, and this being one of them that I dismiss and think, why are they why are they recording something like this for? But yeah, it, it's definitely grown on me. I mean, it, it's sort of quite a bizarre psychedelic song. I mean, it sort of starts off as if you're walking into a Greek taverna bar, but. The part that you mentioned just a few seconds ago, this, I really love the part. I think it's incredible. The bit where it goes at 2.30. Yeah. that slow bit. Now all of a sudden. Yeah, it's brilliant. All of a sudden it happened. Oh, you came into my life. I paid for the shame. Then it's that Jimmy had a bomb and the bomb went bang. Sort of start. Have you noticed it goes into like the Greek thing where it starts slowly and then gets faster. And yeah, faster. that's what I was trying to think of what genre it was, and and that is it's got that everyone around the table banging their fists on the table. Jimmy yeah. went everywhere. Yeah, and then I was looking at. Wait, I was trying to look anywhere because I. I mean, we got we lost the road, we lost the plot. Then I'm thinking, well, is there something for for paper mache, cabbages and kings? I found somewhere that Cabbages and Kings is a reference to a Lewis Carroll poem, The Walrus and the Carpenter. And that's from Through the Looking Glass. That is not out of place for Robin at all. I, it's BRM, but I think this one seems like it's mostly led by Robin. Yeah. And then you've got, the say, the Jimmy had a bomb when the bomb went bang. And I was thinking, Jimmy, Jimmy, you know, the, Jimmy, where, where do they pull all these throngs? Then I thought, well... Morris spent a lot of time working with Jimmy Stevens, which we mentioned earlier. And I didn't know whether there's a reference to him. And there was some 
innuendo or, or some in-joke or something. Because I can imagine that that line, Jimmy had a bomb, was it was just ad-libbed right there in front of the microphone. They had that melody going because it transitions from the previous line, the autographs and elephant mm. tusks, then it develops. I think one of them starts singing it and the rest just catch up. So I don't think that was planned at all. They definitely weren't going for the commercial market with this, was they? No. Even though they were saying not getting the hit singles, they weren't afraid to experiment and try different things with this track, were they at all? So, And it goes back to what Morris said about the title of the album, To Whom It May Concern. If this concerns you, if you like this sort of music, you're going to buy the album. If you're not concerned, if you don't like it, you're not going to buy it. You're answering to no Paper Mache, Cabbages and Kings. This one is also noticeable because it was part of the last sessions that they did with Jeff Bridgeford. Okay, yeah. So he wasn't there that long, was he? No, about a year, Yeah, all in all. Yeah. And I think he's part of that sound, which is so definitive of this early period for the 70s, for the Bee Gees. It must have been so hard for people to, to come and join the three brothers. Very difficult. Because the Bee Gees are the three of them. So whoever you come to join, like Vince and Colin, they did, they did brilliantly on the, uh, you know, pre pre split, but they probably didn't get the recognition that they probably deserved. And it's probably the same with the people that yeah, have always worked because with then, them. but then you get people like Albie Galuton and Blue Weaver who managed to fit in really well. Yeah, I think with them they got a co composition rights on one or two of them, didn't they? Yeah. So which we'll see in future episodes. that lyric jimmy had a bomb should robin have presented this for sunrise <laughs> oh, yeah yeah well yeah jimmy ruffin it's all right and went over my head there for a minute definitely a uh, um, a heart back to previous beaches with with the with the different tempos and swaps and changes and it's as i say it's a track that i've it's really grown on me yeah. since doing this podcast on that bombshell i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna go with the seven but it prior to that it could have been easily a four uh, same as you i've given it a seven before probably around a five so good great improvement isn't it? probably the biggest one we've seen since starting doing this and i think something has to be said for this album about the sequencing because i think they've got it pretty much spot on paper mache cabbages and kings it's all over the place but then they know that right after that they're going to they're going to contrast that with the most gentle, prettiest ballad that you can get with I Can Bring Love. Yeah. I can make the sun shine Out of the heaven sweet love Love you forever Just wait until The sun's on your pillow I can bring love Cause that's all I've got I can bring love Cause that's all I've got I can change the whole world 
If you want near me no tears If you can hear me Just wait until The sun's on your pillow I can bring love Cause that's all I've got I can bring love Cause that's all I've got I Can Bring Love has to be the quintessential pretty Barry song. Well, I think it's like a lost classic, this one. Yeah. I mean, when you think about Barry, he's such a tunesmith that he can just turn his hands to to anything. And this, I think we mentioned this song briefly when it was on the um, fan club. Yeah. Because this was recorded back in 70, or the demo was, wasn't it? In 1970. And... I can hear the improvement, but there's not been a great deal added to it, has there? It, he's still like to retain the, the mania of him with an acoustic guitar. But I think it's beautiful. I'm glad that this one stuck with him from 1970. Yeah, I am. Out of all the songs he could have picked, he could have gone for this or he could have chosen Moonlight. And I'm happy with this. Yeah, I'd have been happy with either, to be honest with you. Or both. But yeah, oh, yeah, definitely both. I think this is, this is another of my little album highlights. And at this point on the album, we have heard, we've had a nice flavour of everything that the Bee Gees has to offer. That's why we're both saying that this is such an eclectic album. Well, it's because looking from Run To Me, the ballad, to We Lost The Road, which is that pompous majesty, then Never Been Alone, which is stripped back acoustic, paper mache, which has been everything. And then down to this pretty ballad, it's it's like a range of everything that the Bee Gees can do. This is a... Early BG, well, I say early, early 70s BG song that quite easily could have fitted into any of their 70s albums. Yep. In fact, it would have been quite nice to have heard it without the falsetto. Well, it would have been nice to him to have done it later, but as it, the voice that he's singing now. I wonder why they never chose this one as a single. I prefer it to the single they went with after, after Run To Me. I think this would have been a far better choice to have gone with it. Because with with the follow-up single, they, they went down the same route again. So it wasn't as if this one would have changed any ideas they were doing or what they thought a single should be. From the album, this is probably the most commercial, one of the most commercial singles. Yeah. Thinking about it now, actually, there might, there might be another one coming along that I might think even more of. But I do swap and change between this one and the other one. I can bring love, that's all I've got. Unfortunately, as far as I can see, I Can Bring Love was never performed live. No, I, I've never seen it, Chris, anyway. Never seen it. Personally, I, I think this one is, is Barry's words for the early 70s. It would be great to hear it live. And it's one of those that he, he could reintroduce again. And when he performs it, he could, he could treat it in the same way... When he performs words. Well, when he stops and starts. He plays with the audience, he stops yeah. and starts. And there's moments in I Can Bring Love where he could do that. Yeah. Because I think then when, when a song is performed live, it gives it a new life, a new lease of life. And and whether it's performed with a slightly different arrangement, a slightly different tempo. And it goes back to what I've said on quite a few of Barry's songs. Hear it once, you think you've heard it for 10 years, don't you? So I don't think it would be one where he starts singing and people would rush to the toilet live, do you? <laughs> I think, you know, I think there would it would... Draw them in. Yeah. And at two minutes and four seconds, I Can Bring Love is the second shortest song on the album. But then looking at the lyrics, which 
originated from the poetry book. Oh, really? That's right. Yeah, I remember. It was the poetry book that we looked at in the episode for The Kids No Good. Yeah. And, and that consists of three verses or three stanzas. So it's understandable why it's only two minutes, but it, as a poem, it translates so well to the to the acoustic ballad. And I don't think you need to extend it any longer, do you? It's no. like, uh, please don't turn out the lights. You know, they're, they're, they're perfectly formed the way they are. Yeah. Well, we could say about a couple of other songs that stand the way, but this one, it's fine. So with that then, I'm going to give this a big fat nine. I'm same with you, on a nine. Okay. Well... Have you got your bottle of drink ready for the next one? <laughs> We're going to a party. I held a party and nobody came Strangely I was upset Poured out a drink Right then, before I start this one, have you ever heard of the programme called The Persuaders? No. It was done probably 70-71. I think the beginning of this song is is very, very close to the theme tune to The Persuaders. Okay. You You have a listen. That is remarkably similar, and there's no way that they couldn't have been inspired. <laughs> no. I mean, who else can hold a party where nobody came, apart from Robin? Well, then 20 years down the line, it's a party where no one came, and it's a party with no name. <laughs> yeah. So whether he intended to invite Roger Moore and Tony Curtis, I don't know, but uh, I quite like this one. Yeah, I don't have a lot to say about it, to be honest. It, it I like some of the, the vocal techniques towards the final section it goes back to the harpsichord triple meter and and you've got i can't tell whether it's Barry or Robin but they they're doing vocal inflections whenever every time the beat drops that's yeah. really nice i like that touch to it i always put this one i think it probably suffers a little bit after i can bring love to this one but obviously you've got that intro, which which is is slightly different. Had they gone into their normal intros, it probably would... It, but, but at least that does, I suppose, separate it from, from others. It's a good album track. I wouldn't go as far as an album filler, but it's definitely in Robin's style of song. 3-4 tempo yeah. or 6-8 yeah. tempo. Use of harpsichord again, like with those chamber music pieces from Sing Slowly Sisters. Yeah. But it is BRM. Although I see it more as Robin. Yeah, I do. I was quite surprised when actually, when you say that, I was quite surprised when I saw it composed by all three. I tend sometimes to listen to an album or listen to it now because you forget and and think who composed what, you know, think, oh, I wonder if this is Robin, wonder if this is Barry. But when this come on up, I straight away assumed it was him. Yeah. Looking at Andrew Sandoval's book, 
does he detail when this one was recorded? He does, and it's on the 17th of April. It said that they worked with Mike Claydon and Damon Lineshaw. The first song they did that day was I Held a Party, and it would be captured in eight takes after rolling over at least five early abortive false starts. Of these, only the fourth and eighth are complete performances. Take eight will be the master and feature some of Morris's, so it was Morrison that plays the harpsichord, harkening back to the band's sound. You think, oh, Andrew seems to think that it brings back the sound of the Bee Gees first. Yeah, it does. A lot towards the end as well, there's a a dark choir or, a, or an underlying chorus, which is similar to Every Christian Lionhearted Man and also Odessa. Which goes back to what we were saying about this album being the, a long lost brother to Bee Gees first. Yeah. I looked at the lyrics for I Held a Party and there really isn't that many lyrics at all there. It's kind of a weird song because it's it starts off with the chorus or the hook of I Held a Party, Nobody Came and then there's only two verses there. That's probably because nobody came. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't write about much. The actual notion of holding a party that no one attends <laughs> is, is actually quite apt for... Well, it's sad, isn't it? And it's apt for the Bee Gees... In the early 70s, holding a party, doing something that's quite extravagant, putting a lot of effort into something that then nobody appreciates. But does it go back to their their thing of loneliness again? Well, doesn't that just sum up Trafalgar to who it may concern of these albums that are beautifully made, but nobody buys and and that went under the radar? That's true, isn't it? I hadn't thought of it like that. And I'd also been mishearing a lot of the lyrics until I looked at them just now, when it says... Berkworth suggested we sleep through the nights. I never knew him so well. Well, I always heard that as Berkworth suggested we speak through the night. I oh, never okay. knew him so well. So they're, they're talking to each other. Yeah, looking at it, it's the story that the, the, the protagonist, presumably Robin, yeah. holds this party. Berkworth, whoever that is, is the only person to attend. And then Berkworth says, have no regrets. Maybe your gentle friends had some delay. Don't try to take on the world. And then Robin goes to bed and that's the end of the party. Oh, well, he didn't, he didn't have a lot of washing up to do, did he? <laughs> well, with that then, I'm going with a six. We're similar a lot today. I'm a six as well. Yeah. Every time I meet reality yeah. In jeopardy of losing all of me I just am not stronger Life don't last so long, so baby If you turn out the light If you turn down the light Please don't turn out the light Please don't turn out the light The next song is Please Don't Turn Out The Lights. And I have to say, this is a forgotten highlight on the album and it's becoming one of my favourites. I think it's a little beauty, this one. It really is. And it's just a shame that it's so short. It's the shortest track. I thought about this. It's two minutes. And I did wonder, does it work for two minutes? Could it have been longer? OK, it could have had an extra bridge or it could have gone somewhere else after two minutes. But then equally... 
it's kind of perfect as it is. Because mm. there's only really one verse, isn't there? I mean, I like the way that Robin and and Barry weave their way through all the, you know, the please don't turn out the light bits. And then it's like, they're, they're, it, like the vocals are almost like a choir, aren't they? It's similar in a lot of ways to Man for All Seasons, but equally does everything better. So I think that if they had tried to extend it, it would have, the only way I can imagine it progressing would have been a lot like Man for All Seasons. But yeah, this one, this one is one that I'd forgotten about. It yeah. was one of those titles when I came back to revisit this album, I couldn't recall the melody. Again, like yourself, it, it, it was a track that completely evaded me, to be honest with you. And it wasn't really until I heard the version, is it Bee Gees Collective? Yeah. And they played that and I listened to it. I thought, well, this is good. And I couldn't even tell you then. I had to look back because I couldn't even remember which album it was from. <laughs> so that proves how, how it, it just went over me. I don't know why. Because after do, after doing this... this um, podcast i just think this one's this is really really good well i think chris that's a really great version of, of that song they bring it up today and i love the combination of all the voices together do you know who, who they all were chris this one consisted of Spencer, Stephen, Adam, Peter and Samantha. So I think that's almost everyone who features on that Gibb yeah. Collective album. Yeah, it's well worth a listening album, isn't it? Baby, feel real. Am I right in saying this was the last one on side one? Yeah. Quite a nice little short track, I suppose, then, just to finish off. Well, to fit seven songs on one side of vinyl, yeah, you're pushing it already. So yeah. this, well, one... I suppose it, they, that was all done afterwards, wasn't it? The yeah. sequencing and everything. Interestingly, though, this was recorded at the same time as they did "Run to Me" on the same date. So two good songs. And like what you said about "Run to Me," this is another one that would have really benefited from being included in that live acoustic medley. It'd be interesting if Barry listened to the collective and you know thought, oh. This brought it back, in, and it's something he could do in the future. Mm. But personally, I don't think so, because I think it, the idea that harmonising are based on the three brothers all harmonising together, and that's why this track's worked so well. Yeah. So no, I, I, I think this is just, an, it's just a track that will be left. I don't think you could improve on it either, so... I've given it a nine. Yeah, I, I've gone with an eight on this. So I think with the next one, we're going to start with side two, which is Sea of Smiling Faces. Yesterday was history, who knows what there is going to be when we meet again. Will you smile and tell the world about me? Can there be no doubt about me? I was your friend. As I gaze upon a sea of smiling faces, walk amongst the glow of moonlit places, the look in your Well, I always thought of this one similar to Cucumber Castle, whereas that starts off with Sweetheart on side two, 
This one starts off with Sea of Smiling Faces. Both songs in quite a similar vein. Yep. I know I mentioned I Can Bring Love. This was the other song that I thought should have been a second single. When I listen to one, I think that should be it. When I listen to this, I think this be. This one probably beats that one, as I think it's slightly more commercial. I've got that this is the earworm of the album. Yeah, it's got a beautiful melody. Again, it's 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 a Lost Bee Gees song. I think this is, it's like you, Chris, it's, it's instantly catchy. I've also read as well that they're not 100% sure, but this, this actually could have been written back in 1968, which goes to what you said with the Morris interview, wasn't it? Where he said some of these songs were old songs. Yeah, and also makes sense that I would imagine Sweetheart was around 68, 69. Yeah, this would fit in quite easily with, with what they were writing. You've got the, I can't think of it, the singer sang his song and all that sort of. Yeah. Sort of songs. Interestingly enough, Chris, this was released as a single in Japan. I think it might be Japan only. And then the B-side was Please Don't Turn Out The Lights. I think it must have tied in with it. With it, would it Did they tour in Japan second time, I think? Was it end of 72? So it, it might have, have tied in with that. But um, unfortunately, it didn't chart. But I think they, I, I was looking on, they, they had a monthly, uh, they had like a load of reviewers who picked their top 10 for that month that they thought were going to be hits. And it's quite interesting. You've got Children of the Revolution by T-Rex, Crocodile Rock, Elton John, Claire Gilbert O'Sullivan, Elected Alice Cooper, Top of the World Carpenters, a couple I've never heard of, Venturia Highway America, I've heard that one, and then 8 out of 10 was See of Smiling Faces. So for quite an obscure song, that was quite high. Pity didn't relate into chart success. But look, looking at this, um, it still goes down really well in Japan, that song. And also, that was quite strange, really, because in, I think it was in Japan, they released um, from August, they, re- they did some EPs. They did Massachusetts come out as an EP in August 72. And then My World was released as an EP. And that's quite strange, because it's got the, the A and the B side, with On Time, but then it adds in Cherry Red from the Australian years. Right, okay. And also I Was a Child, and I think that's Cucumber Castle, isn't it? So they're quite random songs that they've put on it, and then they they really, yeah, and then it goes on to a couple of other singles that, that follow this, Alive and one or two others. And like the album cover, the these came in pitch covers, which Japan did actually, and like the album cover... They use concert photographs from the 1972 March concerts. Also looking at this in Japan, uh, there's a, there's a, they must have about three or four people that all sat around a table or something. And a bit like in the UK, they used to have a programme called Round Table on a f- Friday, which you, people reviewed the new releases. So this one they've, they've got, Run To Me was excellent, but there's nothing really new about this song. Hopefully it's good enough to chart. And then somebody else says, you know you can always rely on the Bee Gees. That's their one strength. Then somebody else says, well, it's the same old Bee Gees. But that, and then that's what you want from them. They are a group that always stick to their own unique style. As much as I like Sea of Smiling Faces, I kind of, I, I sort of have to agree. I love it as a song. I really, really do like it. Um, and certainly I prefer it as a choice of single than alive. But I just don't think that there's enough to it 
for it to really set the charts on fire or to be anything that's really pushing the boundaries for them. So I kind of see why it it ultimately sank as a single. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a really good song, and maybe if it was released three years earlier, when we thought it was written in 1968, 1969, had it been released then, it could have really done something. But as we'll see a bit later on with some of the reviews that I found for this album, where the general consensus is that this is really good stuff, but it's we've heard it all before. Yeah. Well, it is. I think it, it's their own fault in a way of releasing ballad, 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 isn't it? To a certain extent. And I'll see whether or not you agree with me on this. I think Sea of Smiling Faces wouldn't have been out of place on Eyes That See in the Dark. Yeah, quite easily. I must admit, I hadn't thought of it, but um, yeah, because I think out of all those 80s albums that they wrote for the people... I suppose we're used to it, but the songs that they wrote for for um, Barbara, they suited her voice. Yeah, and then that, that's what they were good at, and and vice, and the same for Dion and and Diana Ross. They all fitted, and then as you say, the songs for Kenny worked for him as well. Sort of, sort of, yeah, with limited vocal range, but <laughs> um, and obviously they must have known that the way they wrote them. Yeah, it's just that the Barry's demos far out uh, miles better but we digress again you go about who who wrote it and everything it's definitely got the swayability of august october like sweetheart I think it's more Barry. Yeah, and then Barry did Don't Forget Me Ida as well, which we I would have assumed was, was um, Robin. So they can write very similar. And it's quite sad as well that this one is actually the final recording they did with Bill Shepard. And it's a great arrangement as well. So definitely finishes on a high with this one. In pretty much all of our episodes, we've made a point of just how good and how essential Bill Shepard's arrangements are to the Bee Gees music. Oh, without doubt, yeah. And for the past seven years of their career, from about 1965 to 72, I don't. It really can't be understated that just the impact that he had on on their music and how he really enhanced it, and was so complementary to the compositions that the Bee Gees were providing him to to make the arrangements for. Now, as Sea of Smiling Faces is the last arrangement that Shepard provides for the Bee Gees, I thought it would be worth just looking at what Shepard went on to do afterwards. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. And I looked around on the internet and he's quite an elusive figure. I really mm. couldn't find that much. And, and I went, he didn't do that much, I don't know. Well, the Bee Gees seem to be sort of the, the, the biggest act mm. that he worked for because a lot of his other works that I looked at across his discography, it was a lot of just Bill Shepard's own sort of backing groups that he was making these sort of novelty records for. I've not really heard any of them. I managed to find a little bit more information on Joseph Brennan's Gibbs songs and it details how Shepard went on to work in France on some film scores and then worked with some artists such as Marion Faithful, but really not much, much else. Really? And then he sadly passed away in 1988. But for the legacy that he has with regards to the Bee Gees, it really, it can't be understated. Was he from 65? Yeah. 65, but really 67 is where his work really gets into his stride, isn't it? Do you have a favourite Bill Shepard arrangement? I would probably think Odessa, the first track. Yeah. And um, then in, in terms of the quality of recording, I think everything on Trafalgar. Yeah. But I think Odessa, just the 
to hear the art that the full eight, seven, eight minutes worth of it, it's 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 a genius at work. And particularly because with the Odessa reissue, we could hear the demo. To hear how it sounded in the demo yeah. in comparison to the final version really makes yeah. you appreciate just the the what his contribution was to the song. Yeah. It'd be interesting to see when they recorded stuff, whether Barry, Robin or whatever, sang a part and they left a gap saying, right, we're going to leave this bit to Bill to embellish and do what he wants, or whether they actually wrote the part for him to to do. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to know, actually, how closely did they work with him? Because you often see footage, uh, there's, a, there's a documentary about the Paul McCartney album Flaming Pie, and you can see how closely he's working with George Martin on the arrangements of Beautiful Night and yeah. some of those other songs. You can see that they're really going through it together, really figuring everything out. And I, I wonder, in comparison, how was that relationship between the Bee Gees and Shepherd? Did they have that really close contact when it came to arranging? Or could they simply trust Shepherd? But I, just... I think they worked similar to what you just said. I think they worked as a four-piece. And I'm sure... If he if it wasn't correct, Barry or they they would soon say something. So, but I think ultimately, as much as I like Shepard's work, it was the right decision to then. I, don't, I I'm not sure why that whether they decided to drop him or if it was uh, Robert Stigwood that decided to 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 change it. But ultimately, going towards Arif Mardin, it was the right decision. Whether it fitted in with the, they wanted to change slightly, but you know as we'll see in the next album so to speak things don't really change do they no no not a lot there, there's some sonic changes which yeah. I'll, I'll discuss in detail but really from to make and sound to life in a tin can there's not the same change as there is from tin can to mr natural yeah which i think is what what they needed earlier on but yeah it's it's an interesting part of it's a really fascinating part of their career i mean even in the um the Tales of Brother Gibb, the 800 pages. There's not a lot of time on this album, is there? No. So whether the, the um, surrounding information is not there, I don't know. I've given Sea of Smiling Faces an eight. I've gone with a nine on this. And the next one then we're going to have is is um, Bad Bad Dreams. Or as I like to call it, Day Tripper Part 2. <laughs> Here we go then. Bad Bad Dreams stands as the last outing for this type of Gibb composition and style, this purposefully Beatles mid-60s pastiche, taxman type music. Yeah. They had it on Bee Gees first with In My Own Time. And again here, 
And I like it, but the problem is I can't quite appreciate the song for what it is or appreciate it as a Bee Gees song because every time I listen to it, I'm just thinking, well, this is so similar to Day Tripper. Why am I not just listening to Day Tripper? Yeah. You say looking back and I can see where you're coming from, but I didn't know whether it was the Bee Gees venturing into glam rock which was really 71, 72 and hit a peak around about 73, started to fade at the end of 74. But you had, you had the, you know, all, all the glam rock music and stuff. So I, I thought they might be sort of dipping their toes in, into that and just to see what it sounds like. I mean, I think it's a good sort of rocking song. Would you say it's distorted guitar playing from Alan Kendall? And then it's obviously got the 1970s horns as well so that everything's going into it so and i think it would have worked well if you if they performed it live because again it's a good band number to do live but unfortunately i don't think they did it i listen to it sometimes and then i think "Mm, it's still in that you you say remind you of things i can also see that it was it a progression from irresponsible and reliable blues that sort of thing yeah yeah. and then then as we, we did mention with every second every minute it's sort of rocking, but I don't think the vocals, Barry's vocals are not, you know, he's still singing it quite smoothly. You know you're all the same. It doesn't matter how you play the game. It's just a bad, bad dream. And believe it or not, Chris, this was recorded in just one take. Wow. So it's amazing, wasn't it? And it was also done the same time as Run To Me and Please Don't Turn That Light. So obviously they'd had those two songs and thought, right, we're going to... Let it all out. We're going to rock it out at the end of the session. Please don't turn out the lights, because if you do, you give me bad, bad dreams. (laughs) (laughs) So with this one, I'm going to go with a six. I'm going to give it a five. Okay, so is it a, probably that's your least or lowest score, isn't it? Maybe because I find it the most uninspired. On all, but do you not think it, it just adds a little bit of um, it? It ups the tempo slightly. They can do that better, and they go on to do it better with heavy breathing. Yeah, they take that style and they do it more in their own Different way. Producer though, isn't it? And he's obviously decided then to go down that other direction. I do like it, but as I said before. Every time I listen to it, it, it just it's too much drawn back to 1965 okay. as opposed to a song from 1972. But it, it, had it appeared on, say, Horizontal then, or Idea, do you think you would have given it a higher mark? I think I would, yeah. Possibly a six. <laughs> At a push? Yeah. Well, you know it's for you, and that's the next one. come across as a little bit contradictory now because Bad Bad Dreams I I said was a bit too similar to Day Tripper 
you know it's for you is very McCartney-esque. I've got McCartney as well. But I really like it. And I was trying to think, in my head when I heard it, I thought this is very McCartney-esque. But what McCartney song am I thinking of? And I was going through my mind. And then I ruled out, I don't think it's really anything from his solo career. I think it's quite like what you're doing from Beatles for Sale. Oh, okay. And then I do think that there is a lot of similarity between Beatles for Sale and Whom It May Concern. Both albums are often disregarded. Yeah. And I think that as a whole, To Whom It May Concern, it demonstrates everything that the Bee Gees can do. And it's particularly effective for their harmony work. And I say this exact same thing about Beatles for Sale. That album has the best Beatles harmonies I think that they ever did. Well, if, if I remember rightly, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't, didn't the Beatles for Sale have the most songs written by other people as opposed to Lennon and McCartney? Yeah, it did. Whether whether they were a little bit short of ideas then, well, obviously they'd, they'd, so much of the stuff had gone out and they spent more time on the on the recording side of it, yeah. I might have to listen to that track again just to uh, um, see where you're coming from. What you're doing I'm feeling blue and lonely Would it be too much to ask of you What you're doing to me Still I'll wait for you Waiting just for you Don't leave me, girl Don't you think it's time You've made up your own mind I've got this down as a nice, light and breezy track from Morris. And I think he, he peaks again with this one. I think it's it's really good. It's one of those songs, if you um, don't even know it, like Morris does, you can just whistle along to it because it, it's so, it's, it's, it flows really nicely. I think this one was one of the first tracks they recorded for this album back in June 71. Oh, right. Yeah. So it obviously... I think working on this one himself, and yeah. then this is the ones ones he brought in. Yeah, like uh, Robin's Never Been Alone, this one is also the last uh, solo Morris composition we get until Living Eyes. So there is there is a really big gap, isn't there? So you can see how the mid-70s to early 80s seems to me mainly Barry, but I do believe, I think Robin had a really big involvement in those. Definitely. Yeah. And this is a nice deviation for Morris from his typical early 70s swamp style. Yeah, it's what I've, I've put down as well, actually. It's just nice, flowing. It has that nice laid back feel to it. And because it was done in 71, would you have put this one as the B-side to my world and put On Time on this album? I wouldn't have, simply because On Time is another swampish number. And I prefer this. I, prefer oh, this. I, I definitely prefer this one. It's one of Morris's... Uh, um, Better tracks, this one. And really underrated as well. Oh, yeah. Well, it, it, it's another one of those that went on to the mythology collection. So it must be probably one of the family favourites. I also think as well, as well as... Morris's great vocals on this is, is the great use of the Mellotron, which immediately puts it, it sort of dates the song because I think the song, Take the Mellotron Out, you could put it on any later albums, but certainly with the Mellotron on it, it, it does date it to, 
between 70. In fact, I would say definitely 71 as opposed to 72. Personally, for me, it doesn't date it that much at all because I think the drums are so well recorded. There's a great clarity and punch to the drums. Mm. Is it because the the arrangement's so sparse, you think? Yeah, I don't know if the drums were mic'd differently, but they, they just sound really... Really crisp and clear. And I, I thought this was quite like a Robbie um, Morris working solo. So I wonder whether he had a home studio at the time, and hence why it sounds different. Yeah. I'm going to go with a seven on this. I've given it an eight. Excellent. I do like this one a lot. Good. You're still with us, are you? <laughs> I'm still alive. Okay, here we go then. Maybe I talk too slow But you got to live a little bit faster you got a little less time to go I ain't lost and I ain't searching But then you know me very well Well, I've got to say, this is a strange track to be a second single. Very strange. It's a little bit uh, like um, I Don't Want to Live Inside Myself, the second single from Trafalgar. It's interesting. I think this one's a Barry and Morris composition. We go on about Bill Shepherd's, but this is probably one of my least favourite of his work. I find the beginning a bit creepy. This one and I, I think I've... it ruins the song. Every time I listen to it I think why did you go down this route? The, the song itself it's not a patch on Don't Live Inside Myself and the Greatest Man from the previous album. It treads a lot of similar ground to Man for All Seasons. I say I like it. I don't love it, but it, it's not one I would put on any any sort of if I was doing a compilation of BG's songs. Now, I, I assume this one was written by Barry, but I think it's in the notes of the Tales of Brother Gibb where he says, I don't recall writing this. So I wondered possibly then whether Robin had anything to do or even Morris. Yeah, I've just found that quotation from Barry talking about Alive from the box set. And he says, it may seem strange to some that there are quite a few songs we don't remember writing. This is one of them. Is there any slim chance with that? It could have been Morris. I don't know. Possibly. But then again, he he wrote so many songs, didn't he, Barry, that he's not going to remember everyone, is he? But, um, and probably because it wasn't a hit single, he's not likely to remember it either, is he? It was on volume two, Best of Bee Gees. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. I did find a review of Alive from the 4th of November issue of Record World. Yeah. And they described the song as another Bee Gees romantic gem filled with those lush strings and velvet harmonies. And the reviewer believed that Alive could outdistance Run To Me, 
which was optimistic. Mm, very optimistic. And I don't really agree with... Okay, it's, it is true that it is another B- romantic Bee Gees gem. And, and yes, it does have lush strings and velvet harmonies. I think it, it, it needs more than a couple of listens to really appreciate it. Yeah, which is not really suitable then for, no. for an instant radio yeah. pop hit isn't really what you're looking for. I appreciate that the reviewer likes this song and if they like it, then that's amazing. I'm, I'm glad that they're, you know, that they're, they're hyping it for for the reader, but I, I I can't really agree with that and it didn't outdistance run to me. No. <laughs> And another thing I've got with this one as well, it, you mentioned it before, but particularly on this track, I find this really compressed, especially from the album. After listening to this, I went and played it on the, the box set you've just mentioned, and that is slightly better. So this definitely needs a... Um, a good remaster. A good remaster. It's probably the song on the album that I remember the least. Yeah. I mean, it's quite epic. It doesn't do anything that hasn't no. been done before. Yes, and it didn't really do very well in the charts either. It got to number 34 in the USA and didn't chart in the UK or Germany. Mm. It, it's too its too much of a is it downbeat to go on, to be put on the radio. And I don't think it's particularly short either, is it? About five minutes yeah. long. So it didn't perform too well in the charts, but did Alive do anything over in Asia, East Asia? Well, not really, Chris. It, it did. It got to number four in Hong Kong. Australia got to number 45. Canada, 19. So, no, not really. So, overall, it wasn't a good choice of a single, was it? But they're getting songs from the UK. Do you ever remember, did, did in... in was there any UK stations that was playing music from Australia or from Asia? Was that a thing in, in the UK? No, didn't work the not, that, not that I recall. I don't remember. I mean, at the time, if a single come out, you tend to either like the single. I wouldn't really know where the artists come from. You know, it might be either UK, I suppose UK, Europe or, or America. I, I don't really know. But you definitely weren't listening to a live. No, I didn't hear Didn't even know it existed. <laughs> But I suppose it, showing the chart position, it, it, it wouldn't have got any promotion that I can be aware of, really. So Alive was quite dead. <laughs> so on that, um, I'm going to go with a six. Yeah, same, same as you. We now reach Road to Alaska, the penultimate song on the album, and one of the first two Bee Gees songs then that you really ever heard. Yeah, I, I like this. I mean, I suppose you can say I've had nearly, what, 50 years yeah. to like it. And... It, and because then you used to play the A side and you'd switch it over. So this near enough became as, as well known to me as Run To Me. Obviously, Run To Me got the most um, plays. But this I always thought was really good. And it you sort of, once you go through the Bee Gees catalogue and things, you you get to know, obviously, now Robin's and Barry's stuff. So I think Robin was really going out of his comfort zone singing this. And I think it's I think it's really good. It's a good fun track and it's one that the album needed. Yep.
I also like uh, the bass playing in it as well. I think I think Morris starts off fairly basic, but then it gets more. You can hear it on the mix. He starts to get more and more involved in it, and he really goes for it at the end of the song. And it soon develops into a galloping number with some really nice bluesy guitars and solos. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd imagine it's Kendall and could it also be Morris? Maybe Barry? Yeah, maybe. But like, if if you was instead of being a, a ten year old me that probably brought it, and I was at fifteen, sixteen, and brought the single, do you think if you were listening to Run to Me and Road to Alaska, do you think people would be surprised then when they heard the album? Not particularly, because I think the album has a lot of songs in the vein of Run to Me, i.e., Alive, Please Don't Turn Out the Lights, I Can Bring Love, I, I Can suppose. Bring Love, yeah. and then Road to Alaska has again that Beatlesque flavour. It reminds me a lot of Revolution 1. Yeah. So again, it's kind of a, thr- a not so much of a throwback, but then also you've got the semi-autobiographical, semi-fictitious lyrics, The Road Trip Around America. Yeah. Both songs surmise the album quite perfectly. Oh, good. I would have rather the, the B-side had have been an extra song that's not included on the album. Yeah, we all wish that, don't we? But there wasn't probably much to pick from. He says, "It's a shame, isn't it, that uh, an unreleased stuff didn't didn't get put on here." There's also a great version from '75 of them singing this. I think they did they do sing it quite a bit in, on tour. Mm-hmm. But there's a there is a great version from '75. <laughs> Listening to that live version from 1975, you can see that they've taken on board their musical experience from the, from the three stuff. years in yeah. between, because there's a lot of country guitar playing. Yeah, but I, I think it's great, and it, it's it's a good audience participation song as well. And I would assume, I don't know, but I assume that's probably one of the songs near the end of the set. <laughs> What do you make of Andy Gibbs' version of Road to Alaska live? Well, considering it was done, was it around about 75? So what was he, about 17 then, 18? It's a, it's a good energetic performance. Yeah, it's got it? good rollicking energy to yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, pity you can't hear his vocals a little bit more, but um, from what you can hear, he, he, he does a good job of it. Yeah. And, and it's one of those songs that I think as well sounds really good live. Yeah, and as you said, a, a, a good sort of closing piece for the set list as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you imagine that as sort of the uncle coming on for an encore. Because then you've got your, your bluesy solos where the whole band gets to take their turn if they want to. And plus at the time, you think of, what, 75? The song is only three years old. Yeah, it's, it's weird, but it seems it must seem a lot older than that. In our span, that's that's a difference between one album and the next album, isn't it? Whereas obviously in the 70s, you, you could probably have done two or three albums in that period. They've gone through, Bee Gees have gone through about three producers in that yeah. period. Yeah, yeah, well, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the road to Alaska Know. 
because I know it so well, I've got to go with an eight. I've given this one a six. Yeah. We now reach the end of the album with Sweet Song of Summer. Synthesizer alert. We've got a synthesizer on. <laughs> I really, really like this one. It, it might not come as a surprise to you that I like this one. I, I just think this one wins the award for the most underrated Bee Gees song. The sound of the Moog that Morris can play. He is just such a, a deft player. He, the, the way that he manages to use it. This is, I'll say it now, it's probably my favourite on the album. Is it really? Yeah. I mean, this is, to me, I've got down here, Bee Gees doing experimentation They've even gone avant-garde on this. When I've got the album and you look at the you look at the tracks and everything, you think, oh, they're going to end up with a nice little ballad here. <laughs> Sweet Song of Summer. <laughs> and then when it came on, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Even now, I mean, it's it's the longest track on the album, isn't it? Yeah. Just over five minutes. And it still amazes me that they've come up with something like this, or particularly Morris has. I mean, like you said on Paper Mache, this what this one again. There's a link between I think deeply, deeply me, yeah. Mr. Waller's Wailing Wall. If I'd have been in a room and, and somebody played a clip of this, I wouldn't have a clue who it was. You, you you just wouldn't immediately, or you wouldn't think at all. It's the Bee Gees, would you? Because this is the only song on the album that the Moog features on. I do. Part of me wonders why it wasn't included on the whole album. Now I know that in 1972, this synthesizer must have been quite expensive and especially if they were hiring it out which I'm guessing that they were they just hired it into the studio so maybe they could only afford it for a day but it's used so perfectly at the beginning because it starts playing and and immediately you're thinking what on earth is this but then slowly it starts to develop into a melody and then you get um, low harmony registers from it sounds like Barry mostly coming in and it starts to couple on and you get the melody of the harmony fitting onto the melody that the Moog synthesizer is playing. It works so well. When you think the song is only a little small, you know, it's, it's a nice little song that uh, they've, they've thrown at this. Yeah. And I do like a lot of synthesizer music. Yeah. Well, if you listen to, um, if my memory serves me, there was a song by Chicory Tip called uh, Son of My Father, which is one of the first songs to use a synthesizer. And I think, I think if I'm right, that was recorded by... Giorgio Moroder, who went and do Donna Summer and stuff. Yeah. And that but that is taking it to a, a pop, you know, introducing it to a pop song. Mm-hmm. 
you say that Morris was into writing scores for movies? Do you think this was intended as a background for something or do you think it was solely just for this track? If I was to try and think of a way that this was composed, I would say that Morris was, I don't know whether in the session that they recorded this, this was the first time that he'd ever used this synthesizer. If it was, I think that it might have just been a case of playing around and then finding this melody line and building the song around that or vice versa. They come in with the second half of the song and they fit this this instrument to that melody. Yeah. I just wonder what Barry and Robin must have thought of it. I mean, it must have been a bit, you know, I mean, poor old Robin. He'd probably have two ears to his, two hands to his ears with it. <laughs> first listen to this. <laughs> yeah. I would really like to know for Sweet Song of Summer just whose suggestion it was to, to have the Moog synthesizer. Because we might presume that it was Morris, given that he plays it. And I know that we just joked about, you know, what, what would Robin and Barry have thought <laughs> yeah. about it. But then going back to 1969 with Farmer Ferdinand Hudson, and there's that 12-string guitar, which at the time I thought, when we discussed that album, I thought that it was an early synthesizer, but it was actually, I, th- I think it was a 12-string that Robin was playing, and it was treated in a way that it sounded like a squelchy synthesizer. So clearly, sonically, Robin had his ears open to these different sounds, which were very ahead of their time. Mm. Thinking about that in comparison made me think that, you know, could it have been Robin that suggested, why why not employ a synthesizer to, to just, just to change? Yeah, it could be. All three brothers were very innovative, weren't they? I think the simplest thing would be that Morris was the keyboard man. And I sometimes think while he was working on some of these solo stuff, he had contacts that, that brought him in this Moog or whatever, and... He started messing around with it and he was the one that brought it into the studio yeah. and wanted the other two brothers to let's see if we can create something. Because, I mean, as we say, it's, it's such a, it's got a, it has got a melody to it, a short one. So I'm wondering if he sort of said, well, have you got something that we, we can, we think would work against this? Or he was either playing around with it and, and they could hear a melody within the noise he was making. Because the song itself and the lyrics sound more like a Barry composition. But then because it's a BRM composition as a whole, so could it be like a, a Barry and Robin song with Morris getting the co-credit as well because he added this, the, the Moog to yeah. it? Or was it a jam? Yeah. Which not often that happens, does it? You know, when he says that, they all, you know, they sit around to throw them together and compose stuff. I, I don't know. But for me personally, the best way to hear this song is, is with earphones. Because you can hear it pan from from one ear left to right, and it's it's sort of more pleasing with it, with the earphones on. Really atmospheric as well, yeah. especially when you start getting those background harmonies slowly creeping their way into the mix. It's quite a chilling song. I mean, you like Doctor Who, don't you? And I can imagine that as as a sort of a background music to, mm, yeah, to something, yeah, it's, sort of sci-fi, it's incidental music. Exactly, yeah, I like yeah. a lot of synthesizer stuff and the music of Vangelis that he does for, for Blade Runner, etc. I really like all that sort of stuff. So I think that's why naturally I, I sort of lean towards this song. It has improved. This is another song, like you say, that I felt has improved the most. But I'll be honest with you, I originally, when I, I would have gone as low as a, a three up until this, but I've managed to push it up to about a, a five, maybe a six. 
But I think it's so different to everything else they've ever done. Oh, yeah. I can't. That's why I've given it a higher mark because you've got to say that people, you know, we've done, we're guilty of it as well. There's a lot of ballads, follow ballad after ballad or quite similar stuff. You can't fault them for, for throwing something like this. And where else would you put it? But I think ideally the last track of the album, because if you wanted to finish off the album early, if you wasn't as keen on this, fine. And it's got 13 tracks, so you can just call it a 12-track album and dismiss this one if you want to. But it's there, and, and I think this one certainly does divide opinions. It's got an ethereal quality to it, which I don't think you hear a lot on many other BG songs at all. Yeah. There's a certain style to it. And I give Sweet Song of Summer a nine. So it ends the album on a real high point for me. Yeah, so you bookend with a with a two nines then. But again, this is one that when I first heard the album, I thought it was really strange. This is so weird that it would have been much lower before. What what would you think you would have gone with? Six, maybe. Yeah. Six. So you've, you've gone up by at least three then, haven't you? Yeah. It's not dissimilar to me, except mine's a bit further down the scale than yours. <laughs> Well, I think that concludes the end of the album. So as normal, we'll we'll just have a look and see what other songs were left off that we've either got or unreleased. I've managed to scoop one up, which is a Morris Solo song called Being Home, which was recorded the end of 1971. If you want me to be sad, if you'd like me, According to Joe Brennan's notes, this song comes from an acetate. It's undocumented, but it sounds as if it may be well another recording by Morris. Um, So we're looking probably around about November and December. He also did a couple of more recordings, which was there's a song called Anymore, which will be built upon Morris's piano, uh, live vocals and Jeff on drums. And there's also a second song, and it's got another one of Morris's swampy songs called Saturday Morning, Sunday Night. This will be taped in four takes, but it's just an instrumental, which will be built around Morris's acoustic guitar and Jeff's drums. So he was still going in the studio himself solo and stuff. So whether Barry and Robin at the time were promoting stuff from Trafalgar, because what are we up, November, December, would that be? Trafalgar was released in November. Yeah, so I assume probably he went in the studio and, and left them two to go and doing all the press and bits and pieces. That's the only time we've been 
think it's it's a song that um, he could have developed more. It's got the basics. It sounds to me a little bit like one of his swampy songs, like Lay It On, on Me or whatever, On Time. It's got a great guitar. So I, I, I think it, because it's sort of, there's a guitar ending and stuff, it sort of goes on. So I think this probably was based on a jam. It's got a real nice groove to it. Yeah. But it's not dissimilar to On Time, isn't it? Yeah. Morris is singing the really low register. That's it, yeah. Which I like in the way he sings that as well. So it's, it joins the many, many Morris acetates of varying quality. Mm-hmm. But at least you get to hear the feel of the song. And it's the one we can tick off the list. Yep. Yeah, going through Andrew Sandeville's book, we haven't got so many unreleased songs as per normal. There's one called Lay Down and Sleep, and it says Robin will sing 33 takes of this brief possible link. It is unlikely that Robin and Morris, who is also present on the tape, get what they desire, and the idea will be left on the cutting room floor Mm. on that one. And then we've got a unfinished instrumental called Passport, featuring Morris on an electric harpsichord. It follows a simple, almost 12-bar chord pattern, but it will never get embellished beyond these basic tracks and will remain unissued. So that's a couple of songs that really were only part of. After completing the album, the Bee Gees went into the recording studio on the 10th of July and recorded a new song called The Happiest Days of Your Life. In the fan club, it suggests that this was going to be for a proposed film that the Gibb brothers would appear in. But nothing's been nothing's been heard of it. According to Andrew Sandeville's book, it's a fully completed production, a slow Robinson piano section of several verses, shifting into a more aggressive Barry-led chorus and outro. So that would be interesting. Yeah. On the 19th of August, Morris goes into the studio and records a song called And For You. He will tape four takes of the song, which features guitar, bass, piano and drums. Although he will embellish the final take with four tracks of lead and backing vocals, the production will remain unissued. On the 13th of October, the Bee Gees demo some new songs. The first one of these, What Could Have Been Done, will be captured in three tapes. This simple number will be based around Barry's acoustic guitar, And then the second song is Goodbye Blue Sky, the Barry Sung number, which Robin takes lead on the final verse. Could have been a great album track or cover for another artist. So yeah, so that's it. So that covers everything. We'll take a look at some reviews for To Whom It May Concern. In Rolling Stone, Stephen Holden says... The Bee Gees have decided to concentrate on their one great strength, the writing, singing and production of big ballads, the best of which evoke a grand, though momentary, pathos. This is a very limited territory of pop music to occupy, but the Bee Gees are its masters. And then Holden concludes, saying, To whom it may concern, should have enough sugar to satiate the most demanding sweet tooth. On All Music, Bruce Eder says, The Bee Gees were pushing their credibility as a cohesive band more than ever. 
emphasising Barry Gibb and Morris Gibb's contributions to their instrumental sound. Ida then concludes by saying that To Whom It May Concern is something of an artistic peak before a period of massive change in their sound and future. And I found a passage in the Ultimate Biography talking about this album, saying that many of the songs, like Paper Mache, Cabbages and Kings, do not appear in any way to be calculated for commercial motives. This is purely the Bee Gees being the Bee Gees and doing much of it themselves. I agree with that, don't you? Yeah. I don't often agree with some of these, but um, no, that's that's pretty fair. It's interesting as well that initially when this came out in the UK, uh, they admitted Run To Me, which is very strange. Really? It? Yeah. So I found this in Disc, and what it goes on to say is, Disc reviews the Bee Gees' latest album, To Who It May Concern, the master exponents of pop with orchestra strike back again with an album which, when you open it up, has the three heroes in pop-up uh, figures. Is that significant? The sleeve lists 13 tracks, but unfortunately the record only plays 12, and the one missing is their hit single, Run To Me. What annoys me is that I took the album to review, especially because I like the hit single, and it was listed on the sleeve. Had I brought it for that reason, I would have been banging on Polydor's front door after having found out how to invoke the Trade Description Act. A spokesman for Polydor said, The Bee Gees decided to withdraw the track a time too late to rectify the album cover. By the time the album reaches the shops, a sticker either blocking out the track or letting everyone know that the single is not on the album will be added. Why was it removed? According to this, the Bee Gees decided to withdraw it. Now, I, I find that a bit bizarre because, as I say, it's the first... Well, now, obviously, you had My World, but it, it at least run to me continued with that run. Yeah, because if not, then you're starting the album with We Lost the Road, which is a great song, but album opener yeah. is... A bit... But it's funny, funny you should say that because there was an, an alternative sequence appeared in some publicity stuff where it had a live first... Mm-hmm. Then I Can Bring Love, right. Strange Together, Bad Bad Dreams, I Held a Party, See a Smiling Faces, Road to Alaska and Run to Me, Side 1, Side 2 Open with Paper Mache, We Lost the Road, You Know It's For You, Never Been Alone, Please Don't Turn Out The Lights and Sweet Song of Summer. It's amazing what a sequencing can do though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. if you put too many ballads close to each other... Which we mention quite a lot, don't we? Close off one of the sides with an unusual, you know, song that doesn't quite fit. Yeah, it's it's the difference that sequencing can make. I found a review from Record World magazine from the 28th of October 72 issue. And in their review for Tomb It May Concern, they describe it as still another big album from a group that's been away from the music scene for too long. The Bee Gees are back in style, with 13 minor masterpieces that will brighten the days of pop fans everywhere. Absolutely scrumptious. Yeah, Rocket World seem to, they they always seem to to really back the Bee Gees, which is good. I wonder what their market was, who, who who they were aiming for. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, because in, in in these episodes, we always read out some reviews from music magazines at the time. Do you have any idea of just how important... Were, were they... well, at the time, though, obviously, there's no internet, wasn't it? Yeah. So it's, 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 but it depends on the sort of music you like, because, I mean, 
in the 70s that you had you had record mirror I think you had nme you had melody maker in the uk anyway um so you know obviously if you prefer prog or you preferred you know more rock you might go towards probably something like melody maker i know during the punk era you nme sort of was was pro that as well so i suppose it depends and whereas obviously record mirror was was more your chart stuff so when obviously when these magazines review it i don't know where they're going towards the people they want to sell the magazine to yeah did you ever buy singles at the time that you'd never heard before no because uh if they if they were brought for me obviously i had to make sure that it was one that i wanted so and again as i said before that singles used to take so long to get in the charts anyway so you had you know to go up the charts it weren't a case of straight in straight out like now so you have plenty of time to listen to the song and yeah this is the one i want because obviously once you've got it you're going to hear it quite a few times as well so and were you getting them monthly a new single Mm, i can't remember no just just whenever i like one really i don't recall i can't remember what my first record was album by a group really Mm. i can't think i mean i didn't buy any bg's albums at at the time so if you're talking 72 73 I, I, i wasn't buying albums it's only sort of later on you look back at that year and think oh you know this was a good album and you bought it since but at the time no and if you could go back to 1972 and give your younger self a Bee Gees album from 72 or before that you think you would have enjoyed the most at that age, which album? I would think it'd probably Bee Gees first. That you would have enjoyed the most? Yeah. <laughs> it would have been a bit weirded out by Odessa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, no. I, I think I'm, I'm trying to think in my head now the songs on, on Bee Gees first. And I think at the time that would have been more to my taste. We then got the responses back in for the survey that I put out for rating each of the songs out of 10. Coming in in bottom place was I Held a Party, which had a 6 out of 10 overall. Yeah. Then in joint ninth place, there was three songs that were all came in at ninth place. And that was Sweet Song of Summer, Road to Alaska and Paper Mache. They all had a 7. Next up was We Lost the Road, that had a 7.2. Then joint sixth was Sea of Smiling Faces and Bad Bad Dreams, both with a 7.5. In joint fifth place with 7.6 was Never Been Alone and I Can Bring Love. In fourth place was Alive, that had an 8 out of 10, which is pretty high, I thought. Yeah, very good. In third place, You Know It's For You, that had a 8.1. Second place, Please Don't Turn Out The Lights, with an 8.3. And then in top place, really high score for this one, Run To Me, had a 9.7. Run away with it then, yeah. 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 It's the best best track on the album. I did take a look on Spotify, something a bit different, to have a look at which songs from the album have been streamed the most. Yeah. Run To Me is currently the highest. But then the other two highest were I Can Bring Love and... That must be me then, is it? <laughs> yeah, you, you, you've been playing it three million times. <laughs> and then Alive was in third place. But yes, yeah, so I'm really surprised with Alive doing so well. Well, in, in context, that one's got... 300,000 to then the next highest which I can bring love at 3 million what was run to me by the way how many that, streams is that, that one is 14.4 million wow we then had our reviews coming in so on Instagram Jolene Departon says I absolutely love to whom it may concern run to me is one of the most underrated hits and then on email Daniel Navarro says to whom it may concern is one of my favourite albums the mix is clear and the songs are entertaining. Run To Me is actually a mixture of two songs, 
one written by Barry and the other written by Robin. Morris's song, You Know It's For You, is a very nice, sweet tune and could have been a single. Yeah, I think it could. It's one of the first Morris songs that I liked. Sweet Song of Summer and Paper Mache, Cabbages and Kings are quirky songs with a lot of experimentation. No real bad songs on this album. And then Frode Apeland says, In the summer of 2020, I went into a record store and found the album To Whom It May Concern, which I had never seen before. It cost 10 euros and I decided to buy it, even though I didn't have a turntable. I put the album on the shelf, but it did not take long before I could not resist anymore and just had to get myself a turntable to spin it on. Except for the opening track, I had barely heard any of the songs on this album, and when I started playing it, I loved it immediately. There is a great variety of songs on this album, and many of them are really good. The paper mache song must be the, one of the oddest songs the Bee Gees ever made, but I still like it. Run To Me, Alive and Sea Of Smiling Faces are some of the best tracks from this album, and there are not many bad songs here. In general, this album is pretty unknown, and in my opinion, it must be one of the most underrated Bee Gees albums. Which is a, yeah. a really fair assessment. Yeah. And also nice that of all the albums in the world, it, it was to whom it may concern that encouraged Freud to get a turntable. Good stuff, isn't yeah. it? Having now spent quite a few weeks with this album, listening to it repeatedly, and going through this podcast, any changes of opinion? The main one is is the last track, Sweet Song of Summer. Not improved that much, but it's definitely an improvement. And I Can Bring Love, which I think is gets higher in my estimation all the time. Yeah, for me, it was an album that I never was encouraged to revisit often. But now, I'm, I'm, whenever I do go to listen to it, I'm certainly far more excited than I was. And it's interesting that going through these, these songs, listening to these early 70s albums, do you think it's improved your opinion on these, this period? Certainly doing the research and finding out about the context of what they were doing at the time, how their songs were performing in the charts where they were touring, what they were doing, who they were working with, um, particularly learning how much they did from 1970, 1971. You can kind of forgive them if they are going to release a sort of quote-unquote dud album. I can forgive them because they've just been so productive the past couple of years. You know, if they're going to knock off an album that might be subpar, which this isn't, but if they are, then that's kind of fair because, mm. you know, they've, they've, they've been working so hard. The next album that we'll be discussing is 1973's Life in a Tin Can. However, before then, we've got a special bonus episode that we're very excited to release. We recently spoke to Joseph Brennan, who we mention pretty much every episode. Yeah, look forward to it. I can change the whole world If you are near me now Tears If you can hear me just wait until the sun's on your pillow I can bring love, cause that's all I've got I can bring love, cause that's all I've got Thank you for listening to Words, the Bee Gees podcast, presented by Stuart and Cristiano Jepsen. 
follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at Words Bee Gees Podcast and on Twitter at Words Bee Gees Pod. Or, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at wordsbeegeespodcast at gmail.com. The sun's on your pillow I can bring love Cause that's all I've got I can bring love that's all I've got I can bring love That's all I've got Yeah, yeah, yeah.